0: Welcome, it's Amelia Andalione. It's Monday, April 5th. Welcome to my Spiritually Fit Yoga podcast. And today, my guest today is Greg McCormack. I wanna get right to reading his biography. There's so much I could share about Greg McCormack with you. And this is just a snippet of the adventures he's been through in his life. Greg grew up exploring the rural woodlands in the Farmington River area of Connecticut and the shorelines of La Jolla, California. His passion for the marine environment flourished when he got scuba certification in his teen years and went on to work summers at the Catalina Island Marine Institute. Greg received his Bachelor of Science degree from the Humboldt State University after transferring from University UC San Diego, which is where my husband went to. And there's so much more I can share about him where he worked in the Grand Canyon, in the Everglades, in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, in Denali, Mount Rainier, Olympic National Park. And I'll pause there because that's where I met Greg McCormack. So a brief story. I had started a spirituallyfit.com web scene. Back in the day, it was a web scene. It was a website where I shared stories about how people stay spiritually fit. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so that's where the seed was planted back in the early 1990s. And I went sea kayaking near Port Angeles. It's actually in this small town called Squim. It's spelled Sequim, but you, you pronounce it Squim. And as I was kayaking by myself, uh, another kayaker was landing he was coming in to land on the beach and somehow i don't know if he said are you amelia or something i think that's what it was and um somehow he recognized me from my spiritually fit web scene and it turned out we had a mutual friend and we had this like passing (laughs) passing with our sea kayaks (laughs) talking about spirituality and that's when we made a connection And recently my family, we have connected with him again since we are in the Bay Area. And he is now working as a a marine educator on a whale watching boat. And we've had the privilege of going out with him on these whale watching tours. And those of you that have listened to me long enough on this podcast or know me personally, one of my favorite ways to practice spiritual fitness is to connect to nature. So there's a lot more i can share about greg's biography i'll share it in the episode notes and there will be a link on how you can follow him and contact him but i'm really excited for you to just hear his voice and hear some of his stories and hear what he's recently been up to especially whale watching and his experiences and and how he connects to his spirituality in that way into something bigger than himself And that's about it. That's actually not about it. There's a lot more to come. I'm so grateful that you're here. And stay tuned and listen in. Greg McCormack, thank you all for being here. I wanna share a brief thank you and a generous offer from my sponsor ubindi.com. ubind dot They are offering a 50% discount on their essentials plan, the annual plan, by using the discount code AMELIA, all in caps, A-M-E-L-I-A. Ubindi.com is the website that I use to manage my bookings, to enable payments, to add courses. It's perfect for an instructor like myself who doesn't have a studio. It's affordable. It's easy to use. Check it out. Boobindi.com. You'll find the website in my episode notes. And use the discount code A-M-E-L-I-A Amelia all in caps. Thanks for being here. Welcome, Greg, to Spiritually Fit Yoga, to my podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Hey, it's great to be here, Meals, uh, Amelia.
0: Yeah. Yeah, great. So for the listeners, you know, Greg, he just call me Meals. That's my nickname. And Greg and I, we actually know each other from Port Angeles, Washington, in, um, in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the reasons I wanted to invite Greg on this podcast is his connection to nature. And many, many, gosh, just a couple of decades before this podcast, I created a webzine called spirituallyfit.com. And Greg is one of the people that actually knew me through that webzine. And Greg, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember that the first time we actually met was kayaking?
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Was that Discovery Bay?
0: It, it wasn't Discovery Bay. It was the, It was the other one where you had to drive down by the trolls. What was okay. that?
1: Oh, yeah, that is on Discovery Bay. That's yeah, uh, Gardner.
0: Gardner. It was in Gardner. Gardner yeah. Bay. So, yeah. so listeners, we're talking about a place in what's called Squim, Washington, near Squim. It's called Gardner. And um, and Greg and I, we had a mutual friend, Neil. And I think Neil had told you about my webzine, spirituallyfit.com. Mm-hmm. And you and I had not met yet yes. at all. And you were out kayaking on your single single kayak. I ended up going out there in my single kayak. And I think we were in passing. I think I was launching and you were coming back. And somehow, I don't know, somehow it's like you knew who I was (laughs) or I was.
1: A few more months after that, I think. But I think we were just, uh, you know, enchanted that there's someone who kind of shared a connection. Um, I don't meet too many people have that you know, drive to be outside and to, uh, you know, just kind of find that magic in nature. Kayaking is one of the most wonderful ways to do that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when I thought about you for this interview, I just remembered how I used to enjoy our conversations, you know, where you used to speak about, and it's like it was this connection about spirituality and nature. And and like you said, not always, not everybody gets that And I wanted to offer, I wanted to offer, I know you have so many stories, you know, in the introduction, you know, I just shared about all these places you've traveled and um, you have so many stories and experiences for listeners to hear, you know, the magic of being in nature, you know, why, what does it mean for you to experience spirituality in nature? And, um, and I know sometimes I feel like I, I struggle um, in conveying that message, especially to somebody that's not as much of a, a nature a nature person, maybe they're a city person or whatever. So, mm-hmm. so I always appreciate when I can have somebody else speak about it. Um, yes. Yeah. To to try to get that to try to get that message, that experience to to paint a picture. And you're such a great storyteller. And I thought, oh, Greg is going to be great on this on my podcast, and I'm I'm so excited that you're here. And, um, and Greg, I mean, you and I, I know that you and I were talking about preparing for this episode and really because of all of your stories and all of your experiences, we could be on here for 10 hours (laughs) (laughs) and we're not going to do that.
1: Exactly, (laughs) We have
0: limited time. So we have some focus. So, um, first questions I want to, I want you to, I would like to ask you and have you answer just so the listeners know where you are is, um, one is like where where are you right now like i know where you are but like where are you physically speaking to me about right now and um and then your your latest um I, i'll i'll call it a job i think that's what you're doing right now as a naturalist mm-hmm. on a whale watching boat so yeah, yeah so where are you and tell me about your your current situation
1: sure so i am down in a place called monterey california and it's about a 2 hour drive south of san francisco And I would call it Central California. You know, Southern California is certainly Santa Barbara on down to San Diego. And, you know, really, San Francisco is almost part of Central California. And then you have Northern California. I did go to school at Humboldt State. That's almost 300 miles north of San Francisco. But I am working as a uh, marine biologist is what they call me. I like to think of myself as a naturalist or a marine educator. I work at the Monterey Bay Whale Watch. And I basically go out on a boat, a small boat, and sh- basically we observe wildlife in their natural setting. And the whales have come back after 200 years of exploiting all these animals in the ocean. Uh, we now protect them, and it's such a great story how life has returned, really a, a, a rebirth, if you will, of, of the entire ocean um, on the west coast here of North America. And it's uh, fun to share that with uh, people who are new to being on a boat. Uh, many people have never seen a whale. In fact, I would think that maybe only 1% of the world's people have ever seen a whale uh, in the wild. Um, and it could be uh, very uplifting. It could also be difficult with rough seas. Uh, we all know that seasickness happens, but, uh, people show their enthusiasm, and sometimes they're so childlike, and they're ooing and eyeing and, you know, it's not just whales. Sometimes we see a huge mola mola sunfish that could be a thousand pounds, and it looks so bizarre. If I didn't tell you what it was, you would just wonder, like, what the heck is that giant fish laying flat at the surface of the sea? Uh So anyway, yeah, we go out, and do usually three to four hour trips on Monterey Bay, and it's a delight. We go down along Seventeen Mile Drive to Carmel Bay and Big Sur, and it's very scenic.
0: That's so awesome, Greg. And I know I've I've had in our family, we've had the the privilege of going out with you on on your boat or your the company that you work for. Mm-hmm. And can you describe like what is the Like, what is the length of, so what are the whales? You see gray whales, humpbacks, you know, what are the types of whales that you're seeing right now?
1: Yeah, so we basically have two seasons, and uh, basically the winter and spring, which is right now, December through April, early May, is gray whale season, and the thing is, you could just go to any shoreline cliff and look in the water and, you know, try to look uh, a half a mile to two miles out, and you'll see a blow a little spout. And from mid-December to mid-February, 20,000 gray whales swim south uh, along the California coast from actually Alaska. And they go to these their breeding grounds, these shallow water lagoons on the west coast of the Baja Peninsula, the Pacific coast. And they give birth down there in the winter. And then they return. Uh, and so in mid-February to early May, we see... 20,000, not all of them, but we see the huge migration back up to the Arctic. And these whales are the long distance, you know, ultra endurance champions of the mammalian world. Uh, We have 5,200 mammals on land. And, you know, a great migration on land might be the wildebeest migration of the Serengeti. But here in the ocean, uh, 5,000 miles, one way trip from the Arctic feeding grounds where they're feeding for seven months. And then they go down to Mexico to, uh, you know, enjoy the margaritas, the fiestas. (laughs) Actually, the courtship mating and calving takes place down in in Baja, Mexico. So uh, yesterday, I think we saw 45 whales. Uh, Last week, we had one day uh, 100 whales in just a three to four hour trip.
0: A hundred whales in one trip.
1: Yeah, isn't that crazy?
0: What? What? What kind of whales were those?
1: So they're all gray whales right all gray. now. Okay. And uh, and the other species that we see in the spring, summer, and fall is the humpback whale. And they too, the ones that we see, are born in Mexico, and they feed in California, Oregon, and Washington primarily. Now, some of your listeners may have been to Hawaii. Which is a really nice place to be right now. I kind of wish I was there right now. Yeah, me too. With all the rain, but uh, I know grain's good. Uh, But yeah, the humpback whales in Hawaii feed in Southeast Alaska, so it's a completely different population. But throughout the world, in the northern and southern hemisphere, there's 14 populations of humpbacks, each with their unique feeding areas in higher latitudes. In the summer and lower latitudes in the subtropics in the winter time. So yeah, it's fun to watch the humpback whales feeding here. They're the ones that breach the most. Uh, they slap their tail, their peck fins, and they're very acrobatic and uh, joyful to behold. Mm-hmm.
0: And how how big whales. are the how big are the um, gray whales versus the humpback whales in I guess feet? I mean, yeah, that's a good question.
1: Like... Uh, both of them are kind of like the size of a school bus. Mm. And so next time you see a bus on the, on the road, just say, Oh my gosh, that is the size of a whale. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I kind of wish sometimes we had somebody standing on top of the head of the gray whale, just to, or the humpback just to see the size, but they're about 40 uh, to 50 feet in length. Most of them, Mm -hmm. the adults, and, uh, they might weigh 35 to 40 tons. Uh, you know, 70 to 80,000 pounds. So, uh, just as a reference, the elephant weighs six tons, and uh, you know, measured from tip of the trunk to the tip of the tail, an elephant is 29 feet long. And so, you're talking about an animal that's much larger than an elephant and it's swimming right here in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow.
0: And then right now, I know you and I, we're recording this in January. This will mm-hmm. be published a little bit later. But sure. um, so are you seeing babies yet or no? Not yet. What?
1: There was a premature one spotted uh, last week. So now and then, it's about a year long gestation for the mothers, 11 to 13 months. So they're one of the reasons they head south is that the females can ger- give birth in the warmer waters. Anybody who lives in California knows that it's not the warmest water. If you jump in the water, it's right now, it's like 52 degrees and Southern California is warmer and Baja is even a little bit warmer. So the babies don't have much blubber. They're born in warm water and, uh, you know, it's more comfortable energetically. Uh, you know, it's, it makes sense to give birth in uh, warm water and the babies grow quickly on the mother's milk. And after a while, it's like, hey, mama's getting hungry and mama wants to take you on a long trip. I mean, the distance traveled is basically like swimming from San Francisco to New York City and then down to Texas, about 5,000 miles one way. Mm -hmm. So you need a lot of energy to do that. And so basically the whales that we see off our coasts, they have to, you know, the humpbacks have to feed a lot to get the blubber on their bodies because these whales don't eat when they migrate and when they do their breeding and calving down South. So the same story for both the humpback and the gray whales eat for seven or eight months, migrate and uh, mate and have some fun uh, down in the subtropics of Mexico in the, uh, in the winter months. Kind of a nice life. I think.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, can you share? Is there a story that you can think of of taking a a client out or a guest out on the boat? You know, their first time ever seeing a whale. Like, what what have you observed?
1: Yes. So, you know, some days it's much. It can be more dramatic than others. I mean, sometimes we see the spout uh, far away. You know, the anticipation builds. But, uh, you know, sometimes I just, you know, we, we do, a, uh, we have drone pilots, we have professional photographers and videographers on our boats, and they post everything online. And uh, the videos and photographs that we have are absolutely stunning. But the one thing we don't do that I sort of wish we did is to record the reactions of folks when they first see a whale because it is absolutely priceless and that's why i'm in my line of work really is to uh to I, i just enjoy being with others in nature and seeing their reaction when something magnificent happens so there's some trips where all of a sudden you know the whales come up pretty close to their boat they they know where we are and, I mean, people are just so beside themselves sometimes. They're, you just hear them and uh, the ooing and eyeing and, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And <laughs> it's such a wonderful thing. And it reminds me that we never, as adults, ever lose that sense of wonder that we have as a child. That even though it might be kind of down, uh, you know, knocked down by the difficulties of, you know, living every day as an adult in this world, uh, we can get run down sometimes. But when you're out there and see the majesty, the beauty, the magic, the grace, the beauty of this animal that comes right up to you, and sometimes it's dolphins, you'll get a thousand dolphins surrounding our boat and they often they like to play. They do bow riding, which means they come up to the front end of the boat and they get pushed forward by the pressure wave. So they don't even have to move their tail up and down to propel themselves forward. And it's just a game for them. They're they're playing with their boat and you can see them communicating. You see them interacting with each other And my job really is to, you know, allow that to happen. I don't want to get in the way of that, right? But when these animals are uh, down underwater, like the whales typically dive down for several minutes, I have a chance to kind of like just briefly go over what we just saw. And it's kind of just fun to relate that we humans share so many qualities with other animals, right? Sometimes we forget that we're, living and breathing animals and one of them is just that we're very social we hang out in pods you know we have our friends and you know quite honestly dolphins are often hanging out in same sex same age pods so think of that with humans you know there's teenagers that all hang out together you know there's guys that want to watch the ball game you know on the weekend you know Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, gals doing their social thing and, and uh, you know, maybe couples with newborn kids hang out with other couples with newborn kids. So we see actually nursery pods, all mothers with baby dolphins, but no males. You know, it's just, hey, this is this is a nursery pod. You know, we just want to hang out with each other. We don't want, uh, you know, any males here. So I'd like to try to compare the animals that we're seeing and try to interpret their behaviors, why they do what they do. And then certainly uh, compare it to us humans. And when I look around the boat, I see a lot of couples. I mean, it's a really fun thing to do (laughs) as a couple, you know? And uh, you know, I often wonder like, I wonder how this couple met, you know? And what was it? how do people meet? You know, we kind of forget that we exhibit all the same behaviors. I mean, the dolphins can be frisky and promiscuous, but humans, you know, in order to meet each other, there are some attractors, you know, was it a blink of an eye, a flick of the hair, you know, a flexing of the muscles? Was it swiping right, swiping left on an app? You know, we have attractions and, uh, You know, we prepare ourselves for a Friday night date or a Saturday night date, and the animals exhibit, uh, in their own ways, in their own unique ways, these beautiful behaviors. Uh, So, if we just kind of watch, we kind of start seeing things.
0: Yeah. So what i what I hear you saying, Greg, is the, you know, the connection. You know, it reminds me of like in yoga, we talk about we are all connected. Yes. You know, beyond just humans, like we are all, like all beings on this mm-hmm. planet, that there's an energy.
1: Good point. There's
0: an energy and a connection that we have. Yes. And do you have, do you have a specific story of where you, you personally felt a connection to a whale? Mm-hmm. Like your personal story, a connection to a whale?
1: Sure. Uh you know one thing I have done with the gray whales I've have followed the entire migration I led tours um, in the past to the lagoons where they're born and I've actually have met the natives that eat some of these whales up in the Bering and Chukchi Seas the in the Russian Far East and even in the United States there are peoples up there that have a um, a permit uh, to, to just take a few whales. And they've been doing that for thousands of years, but certainly uh, I remember one time where I brought my mother and one of my nephews uh, to the lagoons in Mexico. And let me tell you that, you know, sometimes you want to get up really early. And so we're up at dawn and in Baja, Mexico, there's something very, magical about how quiet it is i think it's because it's a desert right and you know when you're down there the sunrises and sunsets can just linger and be stunning so these lagoons are so quiet that you could hear the whale breathing one or two miles away so you might see the spout and then i count 1001 1002 three you know five seconds later that's a mile 10 seconds, that's uh, two miles. And and then you get the sound. And then you, not only do you see the whales that we're going to go out to, but you see thousands of pelicans and cormorants, and to hear every wing beat at, as it flies over the water. So the soundscapes are absolutely mind-blowing mind um, at how beautiful uh, sound travels in the desert. So anyway, uh it's kind of fun. you kind of meet a uh what's called a um a ponga driver, and it's just a Mexican captain, and it's really just a fishing boat. Ponga is just a twenty foot boat with an outboard motor. maybe they have their nets and fishing gear in there, and so he might say, "Hey, meet us down at you know seven in the morning, but so you get there at six thirty, but he may not show up till seven thirty or eight at eight in the morning, so that's just Mexican time. And so you have to get over your, <laughs> where is this guy? He said he'd be here at seven, you know, it's Mexican time. Oh yeah, I forgot I'm in Mexico. So then you go out in this boat and it's just, you know, it takes a couple minutes to get out there. And so it was really fun to have my mom and my nephew. Uh, and the mother is 50 feet long and your boat is 20 feet long and the water is really clear. So you can see this huge, mother underneath you and if she wanted to she could knock you over but she doesn't uh, she's just curious and the baby's even more curious. the baby spy hops mm-hmm. that means it pokes its head out of the water and you just lean over and if you want you touch the whale and if you get really excited you kiss the whale and that's something you never ever forget for your entire life And so it's okay crazy. So wait Greg yeah
0: did you kiss the whale? Oh, uh, I have kissed the whale, yes. Okay, how do you kiss a whale? <laughs> Tell, <laughs> <I> me. <know. laughs> Tell me. Tell me. Not at sea yeah. world, not at some, but like out in the ocean. How yeah. do you kiss a whale?
1: <laughs> it's only going to happen. The only time this is going to happen is when the baby whales are only a month or two or three years, three months old, three months old, sorry. And they're with their mothers. And uh, for whatever reason, after swimming 5,000 miles, they want to relax. I mean, they're tired. Uh, Not all of them, you know, they have energy to kind of do their courtship mating, but the mothers and babies, um, you know, the babies are curious. And I think the mothers just allow the baby to be curious. So the baby, I think they like the sound of the outboard motor of the small boat. Now this is the only time they're ever going to do this when they're migrating past California They are on a mission. Their mission is to get up north, eat for seven months, and then come back down to Mexico the next year. So, uh, you know, mid-February to late March is the time to go down to these lagoons to see the mothers with their babies. Uh, You know, like the babies are learning how to swim uh, long distances. They're practicing. They swim against the incoming tide six hours later, they swim against the outgoing tide. And, uh, I think they just get bored and they seem to come up to the boat. There might be two or three of these pongas with, with tourists, uh, on them, but the baby seems to come up to the boat that has the most crazed humans like screaming and, you know, just beside themselves. So it's, it's so fun. Like I said, to see people reacting to The joy of being that close to a huge, huge animal. And again, these are bigger than elephants, you know, I mean, uh, and they're right there in the water and they just, they seek, uh, somehow they seek a connection to us, you know, like us connecting to them. You'll see their eye and see this eye that's, you know, the size of your fist looking at you is It it, it changes you. It it absolutely changes who you are and why, you know, I don't know why you exist, but it just kind of helps you understand that we're on this miraculous blue planet. And uh,
0: Okay, so back to the kissing the the whale, which I'm not sure sure. if you're recommending this, but so are you saying that a baby will Mm -hmm. come up to a boat and what is somebody just leaning over? And kissing yeah. the whale?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was never really seen until I think the late 70s by Mexicans. And this is because this whale was in danger with extinction. We hunted the gray whale to extinction in the Atlantic Ocean in the 1700s. And then we hunted it to near extinction twice in the Pacific Ocean, twice in the last 170 years. So the 1850s. Charles Scammon, a Yankee whaler based out of San Francisco, found out where they do their breeding and the hunt was on. And again, uh, in the 1930s, we had a treaty with Mexico, the United States saying, hey, no more hunting these animals. They're going to disappear forever. And they got protection with the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act in the early 70s. And in 1994, uh, the gray whale got off the endangered species list. So it wasn't until the '70s that some Mexican researchers were studying these, you know, critically endangered whales. And you know, one day this curious whale came up to a boat, and the researchers like, "What is this whale doing? Is it going to knock me over? This is scary." And uh, for whatever reason, I think the guy had a broom in his boat, and he scratched the back of the whale, and, and the whale seemed to really like the interaction. And the next day, you know, researchers are out there. That same whale came back with a buddy of his. And so we called these whales friendly whales. So not all whales are friendly down in Mexico. Um, We're in the breeding lagoons. Uh, But many of them are curious and friendly. And so it's just the friendly whales that come up to your boat. And now they just enjoy being touched. And uh, if you want to kiss them, you can kiss them. And so you can go down and do this, uh, as an experience and you, know, you could spend thousands of dollars to have people plan it for you in America, or you could just be adventurous and go down on your own. And, uh, there's plenty of captains and they'll take you out there. And, uh, like I said, it could, uh, really change, change the way you see, see wildlife by having this experience
0: hmm. So can you can you explain why is it that mm-hmm. because I know with some other animals, like if I'm if I'm hiking or backpacking and I see a bear and I see a mm-hmm. cub, I don't want to get next to the cub because that mama might go after me. And bear. yet you're saying these mothers and babies, whales. Mm
1: hmm.
0: So is there not a sense of being territorial with these mama whales or is there something Uh, different
1: no that's a very incisive uh, very good question here so look uh, it used to be that these uh, whalers would often kill the baby in order to get the mother close enough to harpoon so Mm. you got to go back to the 1850s there were sailing vessels we didn't have the uh, steamships yet and they would come into these uh, lagoons they'd offload the longboats and then here's like six guys rowing in this little boat, you know, barely 20 feet long, rowing and they've got some harpoon and they're supposed to kill this whale because one whale will get you 30 barrels of oil. And, you know, we all want oil for oil, whale oil lanterns to light our streets and to read our books by. So this is why we are hunting the whales to begin with. And the mother would get defensive. So, uh, these whales were actually called the devilfish because the mother acted like, well, obviously, if, if you kill a mother's baby, the mother's going to be defensive. And obviously, the mother would knock over the boats. And sometimes some whalers were killed because the mother was ruthless in her revenge of the whalers killing the babies. So here, after all these years, you know, this animal has basically uh, let bygones be bygones and have forgotten or let it just go that we used to hunt them to near extinction. And they know that we are friendly. We're no longer have these evil intentions of, uh, you know, killing them. Uh, Anyway, it's, you know, we killed 99% of the blue whales. I mean, I don't, I try not, I try to, Leave people with hopeful messages that we're protecting the whales. The whales are making a comeback. But, you know, you have to remember that we exploited animals. Sea otters we thought were extinct for 100 years. There used to be 13,000 of them in California. And they were completely gone from the 1830s to the 1930s. Uh, we hunted the elephant seals. There used to be 300,000 of them. We hunted them down to there was only 100. So you know, the thing is, we used to just go after. We are the biggest predator on the planet. You know, <laughs> there's absolutely no doubt about it. But when we're nice enough to protect areas for these animals to thrive, I think it gets back to uh, these animals not fearing us any longer.
0: Wow, that's yeah. so that's so interesting. I, I mm-hmm. didn't know that mm-hmm. that history. And um, because I was, I was curious, I was in Discovery Bay, you know, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. mentioned Discovery Bay. Mm -hmm. So this is about 20 years ago, I was kayaking out there by myself and, Mm -hmm. and I jumped in because I saw whales breaching actually at the mouth, mouth of the bay. And as I went out by myself, next thing I knew, I saw a whale coming towards me and I was Mm -hmm. by myself. I didn't see anyone on the bay and I was like, oh, shit.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So I just braced myself. I braced my knees. I just I just ended up just stopping and just sitting still. And this whale swam right underneath me. Nice. And I could feel the spray. And then it did this turn so I could see its eye, like it was looking Mm -hmm. at me. And I mean you said like how the eye is like a Mm -hmm. the size of a fist. I mean it looked bigger than that. Yeah. And um and all my fear went away. Mm Mm-hmm. I looked into this whale's eye and I I don't know, whatever my experience was, but all of a sudden I was overcome with this sense of calm. Mm -hmm. And this whale felt like it, you said a friendly whale, but this whale felt like a friendly, curious whale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my fear of it could lift me up, it could toss me over, it could take its tail and like maybe break my kayak in half. I mean, you know, I kind of had a flash of those those thoughts and then they completely went away and then with a flick of its tails it like it was gone it went back out with his other with its other buddies yes but i was left with this spiritual experience of feeling like i just had an experience of a lifetime but not just because i like went to a you know, a sporting event or, or a concert. I mean, it sure. was like, I just connected to something bigger than me. Yes. Like connected to the universe divine something. Yeah. I mean, it left me that moved mm-hmm. and um, there's nothing like it.
1: No, there isn't. Uh, and that's the, you know, you mentioned bears. I mean, I've been with uh, I've seen thirty seven grizzly bears in a day, and I got within twenty feet of you know a mother with a cub, but that was in a zodiac on a bay. Uh, but I've been close to grizzly bears, uh, sharks diving around the world. And the thing is, yes, uh, these animals can be dangerous, but the other thing is, if you don't appear aggressive, like staring at an animal, you know, with your eyes and, you know, it's better to look from the side, you know, askance. Um, You don't want to be threatening in any way. So uh, yeah, it's just spending time with the animals and feeling comfortable. And when you do, it's just, um, it really just changes you because we have, so much in common with these other beings right and these other beings you know many of them been around millions and millions of years longer than humans have and uh, they've got these amazing senses sometimes more senses than we have like sharks you know they have these specialized features but yeah it's just this i think what you described is some the sublime it's it's like this oneness this feeling of there's nothing better in the world right now than that experience that I just had with the whales.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, and one thing you know that I'm thinking about for the listeners, mm-hmm. you know, listening to this episode, that you can, you can do something like go on a whale watching tour, or you know, any any experience that invites you to, to see an animal. In the wild, or maybe even a zoo, just see an animal, and and sometimes I wonder, you know, how are people looking at these animals? You have a choice of looking at them, let's say with a camera, because you want to capture a picture that you want to post on Instagram. But did you really see the animal? Did you really connect with the animal? That it's a it's a different experience. It's like a it's like having a deeper looking. You know, either at the, the animal, witnessing the animal, or if you have the, the privilege of actually looking into an animal's eye. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, with safety, with safety, as you said. and um...
1: Yes, uh, you know, I think you mentioned, even if it's, uh, one thing it's worth mentioning, I, I've volunteered the last seven years at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And uh, now and then it's not very often, but someone might say these poor animals are basically stuck in a jail and, you know, you could argue that I'm stuck in a jail. I'm in my apartment right now. You know, I, we build walls around our properties. I mean, we all kind of uh, choose where to be. Now, these animals that we witness in zoos and aquariums, you know, it, you have to see them as they're the ambassadors for their kind and that if we are so moved by seeing them and learning about the habitat in which they live the conservation issues surrounding you know if they're going to survive or not in the future then we're more likely to do something like vote for someone who's got you know at least a hey let's take care of the environment agenda so it's our experiences in nature not everybody Has that opportunity to be in nature, right? We live in cities, most of us in the world. I think more than 50% of our world's population live in big cities. Uh, So, you know, to have that opportunity uh, to experience some type of wildness, whether it's just a little forest in your backyard and seeing something underneath the log or a bird in the tree singing uh, or going to a zoo or aquaria, and better yet, um, to a magnificent place such as a national park, which I've had the you know, honor and privilege of working and um, living in eight different national parks throughout my life. Uh, these are special places, obviously, that uh, um, you can kind of witness what the world was like um, before the human population kind of exploded, right? You see these little remnants of... Wilderness and uh, you get to see uh, animals in their own elements and that that is uh, truly inspiring I think to uh, be in some of these great national parks that we have in the United States
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the world for that matter
0: yeah and you know this whole conversation reminds me you know one of the reasons I wanted to to bring you on here was to raise the awareness of, you know, when we, when we create a personal connection with anything, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. a person Mm -hmm. or an animal, you know, on land or in the ocean, that it can raise our compassion for that thing. And for me, when I'm, when I'm connected into nature, when I'm connected to the animals and all living beings, I am, Going to want to offer loving kindness and care and protection Mm -hmm. of our planet. I'm going to care more about the planet because I realize that this is like this, this whale, this bear, this, you know, this earth, these trees, Mm -hmm. that I am connected to all of those things. Yes. That all of that is like, that's part of, for me as a yoga teacher and practicing yoga to practice loving kindness to all beings, Mm -hmm. all living things, all living things on this planet. And, and sometimes that awareness doesn't come until we have that, that first time we see a whale or that first time we have some type of a, of a connection, you know, like, like an opening or a softening of, of the heart or maybe an opening or the blowing of the mind. Sometimes that's when it's like, wow, I didn't really care about that, that, national park before, or I didn't really care about the animals or care about looking at that seafood watch that asked asked me to be mindful about what mm-hmm. what food to eat, you know, what fish, mm-hmm. you know, to eat. Mm-hmm. But now, now I've had that connection. And maybe that's the thing that's going to create a shift in how people think. Possibly. It could have that effect.
1: Yes. Uh, you ever heard of Baba Dayum's He's a Senegalese, uh, he's kind of a forester and conservationist. He said, In the end, we will only conserve, we will conserve only what we love. Mm -hmm. We will love only what we understand. And we will understand only what we are taught. So these animals teach us, they give us, you know, a little understanding about maybe their plights. We might learn a little bit more about them. And if we're, if we love what we, witness an experience with that animal, then we're going to try to conserve them. We're going to be changed, right? When you're changed, it's like a cancer patient, right? If, if someone that you know has cancer, oh my gosh, you know, it becomes very personal to you. You, you love them. You want to help them in, in any way, shape or form. And uh, I think there was a study that just came out recently that we've lost... Fifty two percent. I don't know how they came up with 52 percent of all wildlife in the world in the last 40 years. And, uh, you know, I don't like reading or hearing these statistics. Right. I'd like to share good news. But, uh, you know, the good news is that I think that through all of our, uh, you know, Uh, protected parks. We're protecting more and more of the ocean each and every year that animals are making a comeback. And, you know, I kind of work in the tourism industry. So people have the opportunity obviously to, uh, see, see, uh, the diversity of animals out here, like, like it used to be before we, uh, hunted many of them, for example.
0: Hey, would you repeat that quote, you shared again earlier.
1: Yes, by uh, the
0: Senegalese. What, what did you say? He's a conservationist.
1: Yes, uh, Senegalese conservationist. He said what this. What was wave, his name? Uh, Baba Dioum. That's okay. B-A-B-A-D-I-O-U-M. And he said, "In the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand." And we will understand only what we are taught. So
0: it's just. Yeah, that's a, we're going to start wrapping up the episode. And I, I think that sums up so much, you know, at least my intention of, you know, having you share, you know, your stories and, and getting the message you know, out. Yeah, we will conserve what we love, and to consider to all of you listeners to, to experience, you know, a connection to nature, and the animals, and to fall in love with our planet in a way that you will also want to conserve and and take care of our planet. You know, because this is our this is our planet. And um, and then now I'll ask you, Greg. So would you share? So what are your what are your three ways to? that you would suggest and how our listeners can practice spiritual fitness.
1: Um, you know, it's just going outdoors, uh, preferably find an outdoor loving friend. you know, a partner in crime or an adventure buddy, uh, to just to go out, uh, try, try to hold each other accountable to go out once a week and, I've been doing that for years. I have, you know, trail running partners and, uh, um, you, know, pre- pre- you know, the woman who, who don't want to go out and into wilderness, it could be scary being alone as a woman out there. But I like to show them my favorite trails in all these park districts where I work. And so anyway, just find somebody who who's outdoor loving, who doesn't mind getting up. Perhaps if you can get up on your day off early for a sunrise, I like to climb hills. So I like to be, you know, going uphill, getting warm on a cool morning or just watch the sunset, you know, find a cool sunset spot. Uh, Maybe plan on that one once a week to do, uh, you know, if not a new trail, I, I like to do a loop and I always try to come back a different way just to engage uh, the mind like oh this is something I haven't done before and maybe I'll discover something new on that and you know with your outdoor buddy maybe once a month do a half day trip and then maybe one time a season you know there's only four seasons a year just do an all-day adventure and then one time a year maybe do a, a fun domestic trip or an international trip together if, if you have that buddy now i i do have my own buddies that i do things with and then i I do a lot of things on my own as well so anyway that would be one tip find your outdoor loving friend (laughs) to to go out and enjoy nature and then another one is just to saunter now that's the way you can go into nature now i love trail running but i I'm often just stopping, taking pictures and just looking around. So it's kind of more like running and walking, but it's, you know, it's interesting. John Muir, who is a famous naturalist, did not like people from the cities hiking in the mountains. He said, hiking, they just put their head down and they just, you know, hike, 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 and don't look at the beauty around them. He prefers the word saunter. And, you know, it's interesting. The, Etymology of the word saunter. In the Middle Ages, uh, there were a lot of pil- um, pilgrims doing their pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And when these pilgrims were walking through villages, you know, the villagers would ask them, hey, where are you going? And the pilgrims would say, à la Saint-Terre. And that means to the Holy Land, à la Saint-Terre so the saint terrors are the saunterers and you know so sauntering means being reverent so it's not just going to church you know on sunday which i did as a catholic all my life but my church my holy place is out in my greater backyard where i have a little bit of wildness and so Allah saint Ter is going to the holy land it's saunterers is is someone who you know just moves about and looks at the beauty and enjoys nature not on a in a quick manner like you know running or hiking Mm -hmm. so anyway saunter is my second tip and then my third tip would be to volunteer
0: Hi friends, this is Amelia and I am wrapping up this episode because the very tail end of this, I had a a little bit of editing difficulties, but you got the majority of it except for just the final like 30 seconds. So I just want to wrap up three ways to stay spiritually fit, according to Greg McCormack. One is to get an outdoor buddy. Two is to saunter which is awesome, a la santerre. I'd never heard of that before. Thank you so much for that tip, Greg. And the third one was to volunteer. And to volunteer, suggestions are, is to volunteer in a way that you are an ambassador, an ambassador for our planet, for animals, for animals on the land, in the ocean. Find a way to raise an awareness that our planet and our environment is worthy of our compassion. Of course it is, but not everybody has that message. So consider that to be an ambassador for our planet and for all living beings. And the last one that I am going to personally throw in, and you heard us mention it briefly in this episode, was the Seafood Watch. If you haven't seen this small little pamphlet or haven't visited visited SeafoodWatch.org, those of you that eat seafood, check this list to choose from a list of sustainable seafood. And that's it for this episode. And I'm sure I'll have Greg back on again and um, we'll hear the whole thing, including the end when he wraps up. Thank you for being here. Wow. Thanks, Greg, for sharing about the whale watching and the connection to whales and I appreciate it so much hearing about Greg's adventures and I don't think this will be the first time I'll be interviewing Greg because he has so many fascinating stories that I would love to share with each and every one of you and as you heard from him the way to reach him is through his website gregmccormack.com and also through Instagram and i will share the links on how you can connect with him on instagram is greg.macormack that's m c c o r m a c k and then same spelling for gregmccormack.com. check the episode notes find out more about him through his bio if you're enjoying these interviews if you've been enjoying my podcast i would really appreciate hearing your feedback you can either dm me you can direct message me You'll see how to reach me also in the episode notes. You can also find me on Instagram at spiritually fit yoga. And a review and a rating is always, always appreciated. I'm so grateful you're here. And I look forward to coming back and sharing another episode with you next week. Take care. Peace out.